Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hey friends, this is Andy. Do you know Engageo? They're leading the revolution in account-based sales and account-based marketing. Engageo enables companies like yours to orchestrate human connections at scale and build hyper-growth sales engines. Let's meet Joe Chernoff. I'm Joe Chernoff, the VP of Marketing for Insight Squared. Our very first purchase when we shifted models was Engageo. Engageo very quickly became the centerpiece of our account-based marketing strategy, both the technology as well as the content they provide. Engageo's platform lets you engage the right account at the right time so you can close more deals faster. So if you're interested in joining leaders like Insight Squared in the account-based everything revolution, then be sure to visit engageo.com forward slash accelerate and download your copy of their new book, The Clear and Complete Guide to Account-Based Sales Development. And then come back and listen to the rest of this exciting episode of Accelerate. Hello and welcome to Accelerate. I couldn't be more excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is James Muir. James is a sales trainer, speaker, coach, and more germane to the point of what we're going to talk about today, author of a great new book out called The Perfect Close. James, welcome to Accelerate. Great to be on here, Andy. So take a quick minute, introduce yourself, maybe tell us how you got your start in sales. Um, well, uh, I'm actually an accidental salesperson. As so we all are. I, yeah, I started out as an operations person in a family-owned revenue cycle management business, and I would often go out and help sales reps. And then we acquired a business in another region, and we needed an operations person who could also sell. So I got drafted into that. Ah. Uh, so basically, I was this technical person in sales, and you can only imagine what that might be like. And I was very anal process oriented, and so I had actually, uh, I literally created this schematic diagram that of the sales process, and, I, and it would say, "Oh, the customer is going to do this, and I'm going to do this," and literally, I would give that thing to customers. That's how anal I was, and did, that did not go over well always. So. Uh, but that gives you a little feel for <laughs> the way I was at the beginning. Well, I mean, we gosh, we all start somewhere, right? I mean, I I'm one of these people, a huge believer, as as you probably know. If I given the choice between hiring hiring a person who has no technical background and a person who had a technical background, give me the technical background every day. 
You know, I agree with you on that. I heard you ask somebody else that earlier today. And um, I think it's easier to teach a technical person how to sell because it's a simpler set of things than the domain knowledge that you get. You know, so uh, you and I are in agreement on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, most people aren't. So there we go. We'll be in violent agreement about that. So let, let's let's talk about your your book, The Perfect Close, which as we're speaking is sitting at the top or near the top of the Amazon bestseller list for what category? Sales and marketing? Yeah, sales and marketing. Excellent work. Excellent work. So it was a, a very excellent book and you did a great job on it. So what was the impetus to write the book? Well, uh, I, as a manager, I discovered uh, in some salespeople and a lot of um, non-sales executives that there was a problem. And uh, I could relate to that problem, having been drafted into sales like we talked about. And, and that is that they were uncomfortable or just didn't know what to say when it came time to get a commitment. So the net effect is they were either saying the wrong stuff or they basically weren't asking for any kind of commitment at all in their meetings. And so uh, the approach, which uh, you know is just a simple two-question process, it's no pressure, 95% effective. It's either going to advance the sale or, or we'll get a close on it. So, okay, as you are sure aware, I mean, there's no shortage of new sales books that are written <laughs> every year. <laughs> and there's you know hundreds, if not thousands, of sales blogs uh, there's, I'm sure, some you know, large number of sales podcasts, though, of course, the only one to listen to is this one. But um, <laughs> what, what is, what's your take that's so different, right? I mean, so how do you, how do you stand out in this you know, crowded field so that you know, it's great you're getting the sales now, but let's say a month from now when, <laughs> when the next one has come out, what's going to keep this front and center for people? What are you saying that's new and different? Well, I think that uh, there's this... Uh, core set of very dysfunctional uh, closing techniques that just keep circulating around and around. And this is very different than that. In fact, I think I may have named the book wrong because I can't even tell you the number of people that have written me and said, you know, when I, when I bought this book, I thought it was going to be a cheesy closing book. And it turned out to be something totally different. <laughs> Which raises the question, if they thought it was going to be a cheesy closing book, why were they buying it? <laughs> well, I think the need is definitely there. I mean, I, I know from my own students and from the people that I've worked that the need is definitely there. But uh, I, just to go for the title, I, I named it that way because I thought that's how they'd find it is they would be looking for something like that. But the, the truth is, it's very different. I mean, I cover a number of different types of closes that are in there, and there's uh, definitely some myths. But most, I mean, literally in the 95% range of the standard, if you were to do a Google search on closing techniques, literally in the 95% of them are going to be manipulative in some fashion. It's going to be an alternate close or an assumptive close or, or something like that. And there's maybe context where those work. But um, if people aren't comfortable with them, then they don't ask them. And statistically, that's exactly what happens. Between 50 and 90% of all sales encounters, no commitment question is asked at all. So one of the needs that it's addressing is we're creating a way to advance the sale in a way that's congruent with the, with the person, whether it's a salesperson or whether it's an entrepreneur or whoever it is. We're, we're making it easy and repeatable in a way that just makes it natural for them to do it. So that's, that's not the only thing it solves, but that's a major thing that it solves. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you explained that because that's really the truth of the book. It's really not about getting that ultimate commitment to an order, but it's really about how do you work with the customer to keep advancing through their buying process uh, with yeah. with a couple of really simple common sense questions. Interesting, your first one, you know, the which uh, I'll preview them here is you know a 
quote, doesn't make sense to dot, 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 you know, whatever that next step is. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, such a simple, powerful question. I heard a speaker about a year ago, a guy named Tim Wackel. I don't know if you know Tim. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he uses the exact same question. Um, and it's, for so many people, I was listening to him give a talk about it. And it's like people's eyes light up. It's it's like, sort of, that's it? <laughs> you know, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's sometimes revealed, you know, wisdom is really right there in front of you all the time. It, it is one of those things where when you read it, you go, oh, yeah. Right. Like it's like it's obvious, but yet you aren't doing it before. And uh, maybe um, and, and we can talk about the whole thing if that's what you want to cover. But I think it's important uh, whether uh, regardless of the approach, you, you need to go into any encounter with an idea of kind of what you want the outcome to be. It doesn't mean we're going to try to manipulate our way into that, but just your idea of, well, what's the ideal advance that could happen here? And then what are some maybe alternates that we could go with? And then that that frames up that question that you just gave. You know, it doesn't make sense to X. We're just going to insert one of our advances in there. And if that's the one that they like, great. Then we're off to the races. We got it. If not, then we use that second question, which is, okay, what's a good next step? Or we could use the suggestion where we say, well, you know, other people at this stage tend to do X. Is, you know, does it make sense to do that? Right. And, and and it's just that simple, right? It's it's so obvious. Well, and so, but, yeah, use this term advance coming from Neil Rackham and, and his work. And, you know, if people don't know, Neil Rackham wrote Spin Selling and a number of other uh, really excellent books about sales. But the thing that was sort of interesting to me is I read through that, and I, it's not that I disagree with the, the idea of an advance, but it, I, I don't know, I wonder if, if somehow this concept is beginning to become a little bit outdated in that you know, it presupposes that the prospect needs to be prodded to move from stage to stage. But I mean, I just wonder whether this is, is something that's still relevant because and I'll give you an example. I just finished reading this book called Absolute Value by a guy named two authors, uh, Itamar Simonson and uh, Emmanuel Rosen. And uh, the book is, the subtitle was What Really Influences Customers in the Age of Nearly Perfect Information. And it's really, they're really the sort of successors to Kahneman and Amos Tversky. These guys have written about decision science and so on. Is, is that, you know, people are really perfecting the art of gathering information, evaluating information, synthesizing information that uh, they don't really need to be prodded, you know, that they've embarked on this buying journey. And, and so they don't need to be moved from stage to stage. They're moving. Sometimes we need to keep catch up with them. And I would agree with that. Actually, I'm a big fan of behavioral economics, so I got to go get that book that you just suggested. So let me make a confession. So there's there's five variations of the perfect close, and the fourth one is called the reverse. And the reverse is where we ask that second question first. So what's a good next step is the first question instead of the second question. And for most of my career, that's exactly the question that I used. So I think in the context that you're giving me here, if the customer has good knowledge or perfect knowledge, or we think they do, we don't need to be so prescriptive in what we think the next step might be. I think we can just leave it open. It definitely makes them feel a lot more in control, right? It makes us feel more like facilitators and they see us more as consultants. So um, well, I, I think, I, I think I there's have still no value. with that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, darn, I thought we were going to argue about it. But no, I think. <laughs> I think there's still value in that question. And so, you know, I think that, that, um, so getting back to my point before is, is, you know, so many of the sales books are written, it's, it's just rehashing the same old stuff, right? 
And yeah. so you want to make sure that, that what we're talking about you know, has real relevance to the sales and how buyers are gathering and valuing information. And so to me, I think the value of those questions are, even if, if uh, you're not as prescriptive for the customer, it's how you as a salesperson understand where the customer is. Well, think about it. What If we ask them what's a good next step, that is a very wide open question, right? So when they start cognating on it, they might think that the next step is something that you do, but it's very likely that it might be something that happens internal to that organization. And exactly. they're going to reveal that to you. And then that tells you where you're at in their buying process. So it's really, of all the options, like I said, it's the one that I use the most. But um, you know, I've worked with a lot of salespeople over time, and they like the idea that they go in with an idea of what they might suggest. And it's, and it's perfectly okay, because we can always just fall back to the what's a good next step and then pace it. Um, but but no matter what model you use, it's really comfortable for the customer because we're moving at the rate that they're trying to move at, right? We're matching it. So I think that's what makes it better. Well, I think one of the, the key things about what you suggest with these questions is, yeah, it doesn't make sense to whatever that next step is and what is the good next step, is that, um, yeah, I said, you're, you're unveiling you know, where they stand, Right, and also then you want it to become a habit, as you sort of talk about in the book, and and I believe this is you know a core behavior for salespeople is to be able to ask these questions every meeting. Agreed, because it's not necessarily about commitment; it's about understanding, and that's that's where we operate as salespeople. We operate in with so much assumption at all times, right? If you look at a standard pipeline. And if we're in this environment, you know, you've read the statistics that people listen to the show are probably tired of hearing this one is, you know, 50 to 60 percent of deals, qualified opportunities end up in no decision. The no decision decision, the dreaded no decision decision, right? The worst possible outcome you could possibly get in my mind. And part of it is because they've got people, you know, these prospects in the pipeline and they're just assuming what's going on without really knowing. That's you're right on the money. So if we think about that, why do we lose the no decision so much? Well, it means that the why change question never got answered. Right? No, it we never, we never gave them a compelling reason to to say, yeah, the investment risk reward ratio outweighed the benefits of staying with the status quo. Right. We never dealt with that at the very beginning. And if we skip that step, you can invest a ton of time in a deal that's going to go nowhere because ultimately, at the end, when they have to justify whatever you put out there as a proposal, they ha- that if they didn't do it at the beginning, why change? Right? Oh, there's a costly problem here I need to solve. Then you go through your whole process. Well, at the end, they take the step where they justify it. If they, if they haven't done that at the beginning, then they do it at the end, and they go, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> and so if, we ha- it's that, if we're not answering the why change question at the very beginning, then you lose to no decision. You're not losing to a competitor. They just decided, you know, it's, I, we'll just stick with what we got. Well, but I think the reason that, that I think your questions become so interesting and need to become a habit forming is that, is that you're going you're gonna to learn at each step of the way whether you need to continue to justify See, I, to me, justification changes from the beginning to the end. Right? Absolutely. The act of selling to the prospect changes their needs. It should change their needs. If it doesn't, you're doing a horrible job of selling to them. So, by definition, your justification is going to evolve over time. You know, if you don't get a good answer to your questions, you know, does it make sense to whatever the, the next thing that you think makes logical sense to do? You're going to surface that, hopefully, very quickly. 
Agreed. And it's going to come up. And in, in that way, we're just helping them navigate this process because it, it, we asked that question today, but two weeks from now, after several meetings and whatever else has happened, some change in the economy, we're, we could get very different answers. And that's why I think it needs to be continuous, like you say. Well, and, and also what you suggest as what doesn't make sense too, they may never have thought of it. I mean, that's the thing that the other part that the reason why you'll make sure you get in the habit of asking it because you may have in mind some sort of next step, some sort of commitment to next step that they need to take. And I mean, I can think of many times in my career where I've asked it and the customer's like, hmm, <laughs> why are you suggesting that? <laughs> <laughs> and it could be because, yeah, we, you know, I had a sense that we hadn't really justified you know, perhaps the investment that they need to make based on the ROI that they could get. So it was an opportunity to go back and go through that. Yeah, and there is a chance there to add value because especially with very complex uh, purchases, in some people's cases, you know, a client may make a decision like that kind once in a lifetime. They're not good at it. And so as professional salespeople, we experience it on a regular basis. So we see the process that other clients go through a lot more frequently than a client, you know, than, than a client may see that only does it once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime. So when we suggest a possible um, advance or a thing to do, um, we're, we're potentially adding value at that moment because they're not as, it's, the path is not as clear to them as it is to us. So let me ask a, a different sort of set of questions that, that also came to mind as I was reading the book, and, and not just yours, but others as well, but, but really crystallized because you had such a clear and easy way for sales reps and sales professionals to, to ask what's going to happen next, next and what should happen next is... Um, you know, sort of a supposition that salespeople have a hard time asking for a commitment. And I know that that's sort of the, the legend that we all sort of hold, but is it really true? I, I don't believe that myth at all, actually. So, um, uh, I, uh, I've actually got a special report on the website. It's uh, Seven Deadly Myths, and that's one of the myths. Oh, okay. it, it, is, that, is that salespeople fear asking for commitment, but they don't. They don't fear asking for commitment nearly as much as they fear damaging trust or rapport. That's the real concern that they have. So if we can address their concern about damaging trust or you know damaging rapport, they're all too ready to ask for commitments because um, they're asking for the commitment. We're coaching the customer essentially. And maybe I can just zoom out for a second and say, you know, if you think about when we're trying to make a change, we would love to have a coach help us move forward, right, at our pace, whatever our pace is appropriate for us. Well, we're helping them do that, right? The key is just to give a little thought as to what might help this client get there. And then we might suggest those. Uh, and while we might not get the pacing right exactly, just the preparation helps us do that. And and so the, the client's engaging us because they're trying to make some positive change out there, right? They're expecting us to be that coach. And they want us to guide them through each of these little commitments that it takes to reach their ultimate goal. And so, in my mind, advancing the sale is much more than selling. It's it's leadership, right? Oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're guiding them. And, uh, so, and most salespeople could do a lot better job of coaching and serving their clients than they're doing today. And that's the challenge, really, of the book is, you know, be a better coach, be a better problem solver, be a better teacher, right? So, we can serve clients better. Well, you use the term, which I use, and, you know, I had an episode, I think, just this Oh, two weeks ago about this is, yeah, sales leadership, in my mind, starts with the salesperson. And yeah, you need to inspire, you know, part of your job is to inspire your prospects to <laughs> take that journey with you. 
Yeah, it's selling a service, right? We're helping them. We're and so that that's the way I see this whole thing is they're trying to get somewhere, but it's not clear to them how to get there because if it was clear to them, they wouldn't need us, right? They we wouldn't even be there if they could figure out how to get where they want to go. Uh, but but well, they, and that that book I talked about the absolute value. Increasingly, they are right. So. You know, one of the things that, that they talk about, and they talk about from both a B2C and a B2B standpoint, is that studies have shown that, and they did some of this work, is that uh, information that, that the buyer proactively develops or gathers spurs them to act more quickly than if they're on just the receiving end of information. So they're doing this calculation I talk about in my books about you know calculating this return on time invested in this particular task. So if they've proactively gone out and gathered information, as increasingly they can do, and filter it and sort it and find out exactly sort of what, to a much greater degree, the customers can understand what it's like to use your product or service before they ever talk with you or talk with your salespeople, um, yeah, they're more likely to act. And so another, to my mind, another great reason to make sure that every time you're interacting with those prospects, you surface the questions that you recommend is that again you get this understanding where they are you understand if you're still in the running (laughs) which is which is which is really important because you know they could be moving much faster than you are and they could be moving faster with your competitor than you are uh than they are with you and asking this question is going to help you understand where you stand Bingo. It's right. We're right back to that pacing, right? We want to move at the speed of their ready ad. Interesting thing, and I don't know what they call it in your book, but there's a, a phenomenon called endowed progress. Mm-hmm. And that is that the, the, the closer that a uh, person gets to a goal, they, they accelerate their efforts to get to move. To the, like if, they, if you think you're getting closer to the outcome that you want, you tend to ramp up your efforts to get there even faster. And um, and so th- that's why this questioning is very relevant, right? Because as we get closer, maybe it's with another vendor and they've mentally moved to another stage that's faster than we might anticipate. Keeping uh, up with the questions obviously lets us know, oh, we need to ramp up our efforts, too, to help them out. Uh, and, of course, the flip side can happen, too, if something jumps in the way and we have to take a step back because you know, their environment's changed or something. Well, and you bring up an important point. I mean, you, you talk about two, two concepts you know, from a psychology standpoint. I mean, Cialdini talks about these in his books on influence. You know the consistency principle and, and this endowed progress. Um, so why don't you spend a minute and talk about those? Well, uh, the commitment consistency one is where once you make a commitment to something, um, then there's a, a strong propensity to want to maintain or sustain that commitment. Well, psychological need to maintain psychological coherence within yourself. I mean, that's where that's the right. consistency comes from. So, yeah, I mean, if you had read Cialdini's book on influences, you know, he gives an example of uh, prisoners of war that. Uh, had been sort of suborn, American prisoners of war in Korea suborned by their Chinese interrogators to write letters sort of saying, you know, the war was unjust. And, you know, when they got home after the war, you know, they did a study and found out that many of them still sort of maintain that, that attitude just because of that need for consistency. Yep. Yeah. And then that, the flip side of that is that uh, endowed progress we talked about. So once they've decided they're going to move forward, and then we explain to them, oh, you're making progress, um, then it creates this virtuous cycle where one tends to feed the other one. Um, an interesting little sidebar about the endowed progress is the perception of progress is as effective as actual progress. Sure. 
And, uh, and so a really simple example that you may have experienced, um, in your, uh, you know, encounters is if you go to a, a store of some kind like Starbucks and they give you a reward card and it has 10 holes on it and they punch five for you, even though you didn't buy five drinks. And so, um, what they're doing there is they're making you feel like you're closer to that 10th one. And so you're more likely to continue to use the service. A very simple example of endowed progress. But we can do the same well, thing which, in the which, yeah, I think it also brings into play the reciprocity principle, though, too, which is that, you know, again, we have the psychological need to repay people for favors they did for us. So by giving us the extra ones, they're basically also cementing our, our need to, you know, to reciprocate. Exactly. Exactly right. Very so, interesting. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think the I, other thing, the other thing too, I think in in your concept in advance, I know it came from from Rackham, but um, is I, I I I'm sure I don't know if you've read David Allen's book about time management, but uh, he's got this concept in there about the very next physical action that needs to be required, and to me, this is always a, a great way to frame it for salespeople, is to think about what's the very next physical action the customer needs to take at this point in time. And, and once you yeah. identify that, then that fills in that blank in your question. Would it make sense to what's the very next physical action that you want them to take? Yep. Uh, and, I, and that's the whole point of the planning process that we go through before you go in there to have your conversation. Is, it, well, we're not asking for a long planning session, just a little bit of time to think, okay, well, what's the next, you know, like you said, the next most immediate step for this client? And that doesn't mean that's the one they're going to go with, but it's the one we're going to suggest because it's the logical one, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk a second about, um, yeah, you, you acknowledge traditional closing techniques are, are ineffective, but yet... You know, there's still wide swaths of our profession, the sales profession, where managers are still hiring sales reps to these outdated stereotypes. I need to get a closer, right? I mean, look at the growth of inside sales. A perfect example, especially a lot in the tech industry, we have our sales development reps and we have closers. This is what they talk about. You know, the account execs being the closers, right? So we need to hire closers. And yet, you know, in many of those industries, the close rate are abysmal, at least by standards that I would consider acceptable. So, so why, why are we still clinging to these vestiges of, of this, you know, sort of stereotyped qualities salespeople should have when overwhelmingly the research is saying that they just don't work anymore? Uh, you, my personal opinion is that most of your managers are uneducated. They don't know those facts. Um, as someone who has hired many salespeople and had many interesting experiences uh, trying to find the ideal person, right? Is it a closer or is it not? In fact, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story I had with a quote-unquote closer. I had a, a client call me up and say, I don't want to work with this rep anymore. We want another rep. And um, and I said, well, what, you know, tell me what's going on. And, the, and he says, well, um, every time I talk to this guy, he has, and I, I will never forget this phrase, he has commission breath. <laughs> yeah, I saw right? that in your book. That was a great, <laughs> yeah. a great so, expression, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and, and that, in, in my mind, just completely captures, right? So here we had this closer, but he wasn't thinking about the customer or trying to help the customer. He was thinking about what was in it for himself. And that backfired, right? He, he no longer had a client that he could service after I received the call from this client. said, I don't want to work with that guy. So, um, 
that's just a, a completely outdated perception of what is needed out there. And in fact, those uh, self-oriented approaches to closing, uh, they do backfire. And there's plenty of data on that. I supply plenty of that in the book, and there's more that I didn't even include in the book. So, Well, yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's, again, for reasons that we mentioned earlier, is, is yeah, new research that's coming out uh, in that book I mentioned, Absolute Value, they talk about this, is that as customers become more self-sufficient and independent in the way they gather information about prospective purchases, the power of the conventional closing techniques or tools of persuasion, quote-unquote, if you call that, are diminishing. And and they've done studies and tests with people and so on and show that that is absolutely the case. It's not their value is completely gone, but they are diminishing bit by bit, and in some cases faster than people would expect. Yeah, I think the new role for salespeople is more as facilitators and um, helping clients um, take where they're at from a knowledge and a domain understanding and converging that with maybe a tool or a service or something that they're not as familiar with and how to get from point A to point B. I think that's the role of the new salesperson. They don't need people to... to um, force them to make a decision or try to manipulate them into uh, a decision. Those things uh, actually prove to be counterproductive after the sale anyway. So um, that, yeah, I think over time, tr- uh, attrition will, will probably cause those, you know, those bad practices to go away. Well, yeah, it depends, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> it depends who's, who's, who's being uh, reduced, I guess. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you bring up, and you make reference to, uh, I believe, Amy Cuddy and work that she's done. Uh, her new book, Presence, talks about you know, when people evaluate other people and they form their first perceptions, there's, there's really two, two traits they evaluate. And you call one warmth, I'll call it trust, um, and competence. And you know, trust really comes first before people evaluate competence. they got to make sure that they trust you. And yeah, if your default mode of operation is perceived to be all about yourself, to be self-centered, to be all be about the close, when we get this done, so and so and so forth, that trust is never going to be developed. Yep, it backfires, and it's especially poignant in uh, selling context, right? Because um, you know they're they're judging these two things. We'll use your term. They're judging trust. Can I trust this person? What's their intent, right? And then is this person have the capacity to? to do what they want to do. They have the ability to actually produce a result. Well, when it comes to, to buying something, because um, in, in most sales, it's almost impossible for a customer to get a complete understanding of what they're buying, right? It's just that, right. that, it's, that it's that complicated. Yes. There's, no, there's no question that the salesperson could potentially take advantage of the customer, and so, for that reason, the customer knows that, right? That's not a secret. Um, and because of that, they weigh trust far higher in selling situations than your capacity, your ability. So, if you're if you're banking on getting your sale because you have the ability or the competency that you have to solve the problem is is king, you're in for a rude awakening. Because even if you're the one with the top competency, if they don't trust you, it, the deal in most cases is going to be off. And in addition to which, I mean, they can they can independently assess competence, right? I mean, there's if you're yeah, you, a prospective you, buyer, a you, yeah, you go to the website, you you go to LinkedIn discussion groups, you go to review sites, you go to you know a number of places, social net your own social networks, and you know tap people that have worked with you. Lots of ways for people to assess your competence. 
uh, trust still you know, requires some interpersonal skills that and interpersonal behaviors, of, let's say, to start with, that uh, if not present, yeah, as you said, doesn't matter how competent you are, your odds of winning the business are diminished pretty substantially. Yeah, and I got to thinking about that, applying that to this uh, sort of wave of automation that we have coming into sales. And it's why I don't think that the automation will completely replace salespeople, because um, you can't get that trust component of those two things from a robot, right? In fact, if, if, you, if you can get anything from a robot, you know that its job is to probably make a profit. That's probably probably the only thing you could assume to be true. So um, I think that it, that trust being such an important factor, especially in complex sales, um, bodes well for salespeople having a, you know careers, even though there's a lot of people predicting that uh, we're all going to be out of work soon. Yeah, I know. We got the, the, hype, the hyped study from what, IDC saying by 2020, 20% of business-to-business sales reps will be out of, out of work or you know doing some other career. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I, th- I think that's, A, it's overstated. Um, but B, if there's a danger of it happening, though, it's, it's our own fault. You know, because it, it, it's not just about trust. That's certainly a big component of it. If we're so self-centered and we're not service-oriented and we don't have that ability to engender trust, then yes, that's going to be a problem for us. And secondly, is if we don't have the ability to add value and deliver value to the prospect, you know, through domain expertise, you know, insights, you know, long list of things that, that can constitute value. If we don't continually try to improve ourselves to be able to deliver more value, then, then we're also going to make ourselves vulnerable. Yep, but, I but, agree. If, but if we master those two things, those are uniquely human sales behaviors that uh, maybe at some point in time, IBM's Watson and other AI stuff can replicate, but it's not going to happen within the next five years. I think it'll be tough, right? And so uh, when we didn't spend any time talking about, um, I stole a little piece out of your AMP, your sales, uh, about adding value to every encounter. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, yeah, by the way. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, you and I uh, see things exactly there. We're training our customers every time we meet with them uh, as to whether or not we are trustworthy and whether or not we can bring value. And uh, it's important that we're consistent and that that happens every single time that we meet. And uh, again, I don't think computers, at least at this stage, aren't capable of doing that yeah not yet not yet all right james i know you listen to this podcast on a regular basis so no surprise what's happening now i've got my standard questions i ask all my guests and the first one which you probably have you know written out an answer for is a hypothetical scenario you've just been hired as the vp of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out ceo wants to hit the reset button get things back on track this has to start somewhere. You're in charge. What two steps would you take your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Well, the irony of this one is I had I had a friend at another group um, call me and ask to do this exact exercise not long ago. So uh, <laughs> I, what I'll tell you is what we did. Well, make sure he's yeah. listening to the show. We've got okay. uh, we've got 300 answers. Yeah, we'll give him credit. Um, so what we did is talk to the existing customers to identify what the company's real value proposition. My friend was a new guy, right? So he didn't know really what their solid value prop was. Mm-hmm. So the, the key was just to go visit the customers and say, okay, well, what do you say it is? And then at the same time we did that, we turned those particular accounts into reference accounts because they were telling us where the value was and where they had received value. And then after getting some feedback, so that's the first thing. And then mm-hmm. the, the second thing was after getting some feedback from the existing sales reps, 
um, we crafted a messaging campaign around what we learned from the clients and then t- and turned that in, um, into a campaign to a similarly targeted market. Interesting. Okay. Great answer. All right. So now some uh, rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers or elaborate if you wish. So when you, James Muir, are out selling your products and services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Uh, just that people will share stuff with me. Um, I don't. That doesn't sound very powerful. Build, building, but it, building rapport. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, I mean, uh, even in big groups, I can get. You know, usually when a group gets about twenty people, they stop sharing stuff with you. Yet they'll still share stuff with me. So I'm sure at some point, uh, you know, that the, the, they, they they will turn off. But uh, I have a, a good ability to get info, and uh, I personally think if the customer is not sharing the important info you need to solve the problem, then the whole buying process becomes really dysfunctional if they're not sharing what, the information you need to solve the problem. So it's been. Very beneficial for me. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Uh, without a doubt, Mahan Khalsa, who the book's uh, dedicated to. Got so he, he's the one that taught me. I, for your uh, listeners, he's the author of Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And so other than that book and other than your own, what's one book every salesperson should read? All right. Other than Let's Get Real. Um, you know, I would – it's an older book, uh, but a fantastic book. It's Mac Hannon's book called uh, Consultative Selling. Okay. Is big. Although I don't mind telling you, I'm a big fan of Amp Up Your Sales, which oh, well, thank uh, you why, very much. Why, is why you're quoted in the book. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, okay, last question for you. What music's on your playlist these days? Well, I'm a guitar player, so I listen uh-huh. to a lot, a lot of virtuoso type guitarists. So, uh, Do you like Tommy Emmanuel? Yes, absolutely. Um, all, all different styles, too, because I'm a player. So I have probably eight different guitars from classical to electric. And, uh, but today, it's, uh, it's Joe Satriani's Surfing with the Alien is Joe what I've been Satriani. Oh, today. gosh. Yeah. I remember listening to his first album. I had a friend who was really, really big into him back in the day. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, Hawaii slack key, slack key guitar. Sure. Uh, um, yeah, I've got, that's my, part of my music to write by. Yeah, I love it, actually. And I lived in Hawaii for two years, so I have a ton of that around here. Ah, very good. Very good. Well, good. Well, James, pleasure to talk with you. Uh, How can people find out more about you and your book? Well, probably the best way is just to go to the website, which is puremuir.com, P-U-R-E-M-U-I-R.com. I'm very active on LinkedIn, so I post four or five times a day there. Um, Also, welcome to reach out via Twitter. Uh, And of course, if they're interested in the book, it's on Amazon. Excellent. Paperback or Kindle. Okay. Well, good. Well, James, again, thank you very much. And remember, friends, thank you for spending part of your day with me and make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is take a minute, subscribe to this podcast to accelerate. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, James Muir, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. 
With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.